Welcome everyone to Future of Health with Providence St. Joseph Health here on Dash Radio from Hollywood, California. I'm your host, Julie Alexandria, bringing you the very latest in healthcare trends and news each week. And today we're joined by Jennifer Alvarez, Wendy Zhang, Kathleen Toe from Providence St. Joseph Health. And we're also going to be joined later on in the show by our special guest, Holly Bonner, founder and creator of the website, Blind Motherhood. And today we're going to be talking about language and disability services to access healthcare. So if you have any questions for our experts or our guests, please feel free to submit them via our Twitter handle or our Facebook page while we're live here today. We want to hear from you. We can be found on Twitter at PSJH, that's at PSJH, and also on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. Be sure to use the hashtag Future of Health. That's hashtag future of health. And we'll be on the lookout for those throughout the show. We want to hear from you guys. So let's get it started first by welcoming to the show. She is the system manager of linguistic services for PSJH, Kathleen Toe. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So if you could just tell us a little bit about your role and what is it that you exactly do at PSJH? So as you mentioned, I'm the system manager for linguistic services at Swedish Health Services, which is an affiliate of of Providence. We have five hospitals and two acute care centers in Western Washington. So basically I manage all the effective communication services for patients and their companions, as well as the written translations for the system and ADA services such as the distribution and provision of assisted devices that helps with communication. Um, Our department also kind of serves, secondly, as content experts on issues around culture that may impact patient care. In fact, many of our staff are really deeply connected and involved in the large refugee and immigrant community at large here. Wow. What does that entail when it comes to refugee and immigrant um, families that you're working with? Well, many of the community health clinics um, refer patients to Swedish and Providence, and we we basically partner and collaborate with the staff at these clinics. Uh, we serve as these community health fairs. Swedish will always have a ple- uh, presence there. Um, we offer um, trainings and workshops, and we try to show up when there are events going on with mutual aid associations in the community. And, you know, we just basically get a lot of feedback from our patients, um, which help to drive the services that we provide and maybe even change the services that we provide. Mm-hmm. Why is this role so essential to healthcare organizations? Well, I think the responsibilities for effective communication sometimes get overlooked or sometimes relegated to like an afterthought in medical care. And I think what we have to remember is that communication is, really is a patient safety issue. If you can't clearly and comprehensively communicate with your patient, you really are unable to accurately assess them or deliver patient-centered care. And if you rely on secondhand information from a family member or friend who may speak enough English or, or may not have sensory loss themselves, then you're still not getting the actual information directly from the patient. And in fact, you may be violating this patient's privacy or putting that patient at risk. And we know that many patient readmissions are sometimes prescribed medicine mistakes or severe medical conditions get worse, and that's due to patients simply not understanding their discharge instructions or not understanding how to take a medicine or how to do follow-up care or they have low health literacy. And this happens often enough with English-speaking patients, so you can only imagine how this is worse when you have patients who don't understand the provider's language. And I really think that if a healthcare organization dedicates the staff and resources to managing the delivery of interpreter services and translation, they're really demonstrating a commitment to patient-centered care and patient safety. And it's just good business as well to help reduce all those unnecessary readmissions or help a patient you know, avoid more serious health conditions or even legal issues around patient harm. So when you coordinate all these services into one role, you also get clear oversight, um, you get accountability, and you make sure the regula- regulatory requirements are done. And I have to say I'm, I'm really proud to work for Swedish because they've made a long-time commitment um, to doing this at, at our organization. Yeah, it's so important. You mentioned effective communication. I mean, it works both ways, right? If the patient can't communicate what the issue is to the healthcare provider, 
that's an issue. And then if the patient doesn't understand what the healthcare provider is, then giving them as instructions or diagnosis, that's also incredibly damaging as well. Absolutely. Now, how has the program you work on developed over time? What enhancements have you been able to make? Well, when I first arrived, and it's been about 11 years now, there really were very few support services for patients with sensory loss. Those are the folks who have hearing, speech, or vision loss, beyond just getting interpreters for ASL. And most staff and providers had little understanding about the different types of sign language or the assisted devices that you need. Um, There was also really not a whole lot of understanding around that you can't use unqualified family members or friends as interpreters. And that even that there are, even though you may have a language like, you know, people refer to Arabic or Chinese, that there are many dialects within that language family. So we've tried really hard to, to develop a robust program that has a lot of services, um, such as we created communication boards in multiple languages, a lot of translated signage, communication signage, basically to let providers know that a patient has sensory loss, a large menu of assisted devices everything from specialty phones for deaf patients to magnification devices for patients with vision loss. And then we've translated a lot of patient documents into the top languages at Swedish, including Braille and large print um, documents. Our next goal really is to try to move this forward and make audio documents as well and have that available for our patients. And, you know, we, we keep, this is an ongoing situation. It's a work in progress. We learn a lot, and sometimes we get it wrong. Then we become aware of some of the gaps, and, and we try to work to make those services even better. And we've worked really hard on trying to make sure that our staff and our providers understand what are the federal and regulatory requirements for effective communication and how we can improve care when we use those. Mm-hmm. And what is the legislation around language services and access, and how has that changed your services? Well, there's always been big federal laws out there, like the ADA, Title VI for the Civil Rights Act of 1964, or Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. But then in 2016, the issuance of the Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act um, was basically a game-changer. And it applied to any health program or activity that got any funding from HHS. That means people who took Medicare and Medicaid. And under this new requirement, it strengthened protections against discrimination, including sex discrimination. It gave very specific um, guidance around not using unqualified interpreters, such as family members, friends, children, or even unqualified bilingual staff and providers. Um, it also validated that healthcare organizations have to provide access to an interpreter free of charge, provide that to a patient's family member or friend if needed, even if the patient didn't need it, and it required that all patient rights were delivered to patients in the top 15 languages. Um, it really went further to define what qualified means and described what effective communication looks like for individuals who have sensory loss. And then finally, what was a, a real innovative thing is that it addressed the video remote interpretation that's done by video on mostly Wi-Fi carts, and it set some guidelines on what um, you had to have technologically to make sure that it was effective communication. Mm -hmm. And then last, I think, the other piece was it talked about preferences that patients who are deaf or hard of hearing, we must give primary consideration to their preferences for aids or services. Mm-hmm. And do you have any specific stories where you realize that the work that you were doing was definitely making a difference in a patient's life? Well, wow, there's so many stories, it's really hard to choose one. Um, one that still resonates with me, I think, is we had a patient from Ethiopia who was deaf from birth. She did not know ASL, um, but she had been using home signs with her, her spouse. ASL so is American provider- Sign Language. American Sign Language, right. So the providers had been providing an interpreter for the spouse because he didn't speak English, but they didn't know how to communicate with the patient at all. Um, This patient was having a really challenging pregnancy, and she was actually quite isolated. So one of our staff interpreters came there to be the interpreter for the husband, 
came back and explained the situation. And then what we were able to bring in a sign language interpreter who had minimal language skills and who could basically communicate with this patient for the first time directly. She also encouraged the provider to use graphics to help communicate and explain to the patient about her delivery. And it really helped to reduce the patient's anxiety. Um, it had a, a complete impact on this patient's care. Wow. That's fantastic. And what about the kiosk interpreter services that you provide? Can you explain what that is? I think you're referring to the VRI, the video remote interpretation. Yes. Um, so what, what it provides is two modalities. One is a visual where you can see the interpreter. You don't have the in-person interpreter there present, but you're able to connect to interpreter kind of like Skype, but it's through an encrypted pathway. And so you can see the interpreter there. You can speak to the interpreter, communicate with them, and they can even uh, type in um, information along the screen that you can see. But the importance around that is that you get the speed in which you can connect with an interpreter. So typically when we get um, a, a scheduled um, patient encounter, we would know in advance and we would try to schedule an interpreter. But there are so many emergent situations that occur, either through the emergency room or a patient, you know, gets admitted after a surgery that we didn't know, and you don't have an interpreter there right away. So you would have to call and ask for an in-person, and that could take 45 minutes or an hour or even longer to get the interpreter there. By having the video remote interpretation, you can click on and within seconds be connected to an interpreter and then basically be able to do that communication and the three-way between the provider patient and the interpreter. And if they don't have the video language, secondarily, there's an audio language of over 200 languages that you can connect to as well. Wow. So that's been, that's been a real, um, it's really helped reduce the delay in care to patients overall. Yeah, that sounds incredibly efficient. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Kathleen Toe, for joining us here on Dash Radio. We appreciate you taking the time. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Jennifer Alvarez from PSJH. Stay with us. Hey, beautiful, 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 beautiful angel. Love your imperfections, every Tomorrow comes and goes before you know. So I just had to let you know the way that Gucci look on you. You're listening to Dash Radio. This is Future of Health. I'm Julie Alexandria, and we are talking about language services as it pertains to Providence St. Joseph Health. Joining us now is Jennifer Alvarez. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Julie. Thank you. Now, tell us a little bit about your role and what it is that you do with PSJH. 
Um, I serve as the uh, regional program manager for the Providence, Oregon region for language access and ADA services, ADA being the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, My job is to oversee the interpreter services programs relating to the eight acute care ministries located in the Oregon region, uh, the PMG locations, home and community services. So we oversee the interpreter services contracts, um, auditing of those contracts, quality of the interpreter services provided, um, and then education for our caregivers on how to incorporate interpreter services into the daily workflow of nurses, providers, access services, schedulers, etc. Um, best practices, we do some ADA education um, uh, for uh, different, different groups within the hospitals. Um, we do some diversity and inclusion education. So there's a whole, we run the gamut of, of language access related topics and, and Americans with Disabilities Act compliance related topics. Mm-hmm. And in your own words, if you could just describe for our audience and let them know why it's so important to have interpreter services at a healthcare facility. So one of the, I mean, we see a lot of things happening in our country um, uh, these days, and there's a lot of discussion around how how is how are we equipped to accommodate individuals who are um, who are living in the United States and may not have English as their first language. Uh, the reality of our communities around the United States, but specifically here in Oregon, the reality is is that. Um, our patient populations are no longer uh, necessarily, we can't, we can't necessarily rely on them being just English-speaking individuals coming in and, and having their concerns be expressed in a straightforward fashion that everybody understands. We're seeing all different kinds of uh, individuals coming into our emergency departments and making appointments with providers and, and doctor's offices and having home visits. And, and a, lot of these, a lot of these individuals in our communities are not necessarily English-speaking. And so at the core of any kind of patient-centered care, which Providence St. Joseph's Health is all about. It's patient-centered care. We're community-based hospitals. At the core of any kind of quality patient-centered care is the ability to assess a patient, determine what the what their chief complaints are, what what ails them, what what are their what are their their main concerns regarding their health care, and how can we best treat them? So, without appropriate medical interpreter services available, our caregivers don't have the opportunity to maybe learn what the full range of of concerns might be for a patient. And similarly, on the flip side of that making sure that the patients that we're seeing every single day uh, as they come into our facilities and our ministries, making sure that they understand what the caregivers are saying to them, making sure that they understand um, diagnoses, prognoses, making sure that they understand consent um, for any kind of procedure, making sure that they understand, um, you know, after-visit summaries and medication dosages, how to get their medication, when to take their medication. A lot of these things are, these are life-and-death decisions, and without the pro- appropriate interpreter services in place, this is information that can get missed. So not only is it a patient uh, a patient quality issue, and not only is it the core of of, of patient-centered care, but it's also a liability issue. Mm-hmm. And in addition to the language services that you just illustrated for us, what are some of the other services that you provide for people, as you mentioned, with disabilities? Can you tell us about those? Um, there's a variety of services. I mean, services, you know, you can have a whole long laundry list of services that are available. We offer, we can offer brailled materials for individuals who are blind. We can offer enlarged print or alternative formats for individual who, individuals who are blind or low vision, audio formats. We have a variety of accommodations in different facilities for individuals who um, uh, have physical disabilities. Maybe they use a wheelchair, maybe they use a power chair, maybe they use a power scooter. Um, and then, of course, there's accommodations for individuals um, who are uh, who, who maybe use service animals. So we have policies around the accommodation of um, ADA, ADA-compliant service animals. Uh, so in that respect, there are, and then, of course, then we have our interpreter services for patients who are deaf uh, deafblind. We offer, in addition to our in-person uh, sign language services, we also offer our uh, video video remote interpreter uh, devices in all of our hospitals and many of our clinics in Oregon region. 
Mm-hmm. And your background is in the cruise and hospitality industry. So A, that must have been a very interesting transition, but what would you say that you were able to take from that background that you could put towards this new challenge as far as your experience? Sure. Well, the biggest thing is, of course, communication access. Um, I spent many, many years, I spent more than 20 years working in the cruise and hospitality industry and um, did a lot of education. And, and what we realized is that not only are we educating our, uh, not only were we at the time educating our cruise partners on best ways to communicate with individuals who were deaf or deafblind through the use of sign language interpreters, but we also talked and educated on how to accommodate cruise passengers who had a variety of, of disabilities, similar to what we talked about, whether they use a wheelchair, whether they have a service animal. So we sort of structured our education to uh, not just corporate cruise line personnel, but shipboard personnel. So that was one thing that we've been able to carry over to healthcare um, in, in helping caregivers understand it's, it almost seems a little um, uh, counterintuitive that, you know, you come into a hospital, you automatically think that caregivers would know how to work with people with disabilities just by the nature of someone with a disability probably is seeking medical care more frequently. However, what we've learned is that that's not necessarily the case. And there's all kinds of disability etiquette rules that most people haven't been educated on. So that education piece has um, has really, uh, no pun intended, but is translated very well from the cruise industry over into healthcare. Um, the other thing is, is that uh, working with working in the cruise industry, we worked with a lot of individuals who, um, were, who whose first languages were not English. Mm-hmm. And so again, that that how to educate those particular individuals um, in an English-based setting, that's translated also well into healthcare as we work alongside our interpreter services agencies and helping interpreters, helping healthcare interpreters better understand how to navigate the ins and outs of healthcare and what it looks like to be a healthcare interpreter, which is a very different realm um, for interpreters, you know, healthcare versus legal versus um social services versus education versus recreational. So that that ability to reach out to the interpreter, the medical interpreting communities um, and, and share with them the, uh, uh, an, an industry, being the healthcare industry, sharing with them what this might look like. So we did a little bit. We, of course, made some twists and turns along the way to adjust, accommodate healthcare. But um, so the but similarly, we educated uh, educated in the cruise industry. We educated a number of individuals who had to kind of navigate this whole uh, Western civilization, English based speaking world uh, and how to accommodate all of these individuals. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned the PSJH commitment to cultural sensitivity, which I can only imagine is informed by the current socio-political climate that we're experiencing today. What can you explain as far as a little bit about what that means, that commitment to the cultural sensitivity? Because people may not think about that when you're talking about language services. Sure. Well, you know, one of the things that struck me when I started working for Providence um, back in 2016 was, and, and, and to this day, I, I find it very, it's, it's so telling, but it's the know me, care for me, ease my way. If you don't know me, then you're not going to be able to care for me and you're not going to be able to ease my way. If I don't speak English, if I'm speaking Vietnamese or if I'm speaking Spanish, um, then and, and, and you don't and, and, and a caregiver isn't in a position to um, make that language connection, then they can't pro- provide proper care and they won't be able to ease my way where my health is concerned. And so I go back to the know me, care for me, ease my way. And I think that um, part of part of that is definitely making sure that if as a caregiver, if I if I'm not speaking the same language as my patient, it's my responsibility to make sure that I'm engaging an appropriately medically qualified or medically certified uh, interpreter to help bridge that that communication gap. Um, And so language access, uh, language access, communication access, however anyone wants to frame it, uh, that is a that is a, a direct connection to the know me, care for me, ease my way philosophy of Providence St. Joseph Health. I also think that as community-based hospitals, 
Um, we know that uh, our caregivers, we know that the patient populations that we're serving at the Providence St. Joseph Ministries are not necessarily going to be, um, we know that we maybe are, are serving uh, patient populations that are um, disadvantaged, um, caring, you know, we talk about caring for the poor and the vulnerable, you know, being vulnerable could be, could mean somebody that doesn't speak English coming into an emergency department as they are experiencing chest pains. So engaging our hospitals, um, engaging our ministries, engaging our clinics so that they understand how to engage interpreter services, educating them so they know how to engage interpreter services is part of the know me, care for me, ease my way, is also part of um, caring for the poor and, and, and vulnerable, serving the poor and the vulnerable. Um, and it also is reflective of the communities that we serve. Uh, when we find a lot of our ministries in communities where Maybe English isn't the number one language in a specific community if we're talking about a clinic. Uh, maybe maybe Russian is the number one language in a particular community. Making sure that that clinic is able to uh, making sure that, that clinic is able to communicate with their patient populations at the level that that patient population requires for full for full comprehension and understanding. So you know, there's there's all different ways to look at it, but it really does revolve around. You know, again, going back to the know me, care for me, ease my way, and, and, and caring for the poor and the vulnerable. Well, I'm sure that you see all of those tenants of PSJH in work every single day with all of the work that you do. I wanted to ask you about any personal stories that you've seen play out where you really see the mission, the tenants, the, the commandments, if you will, of PSJH um, in action and all of the good work that you're doing kind of, you know, in the flesh. You know, I, I mean, I see it all the time. I see it. You're right. I, I do. I see it every day. I think that the the PSJH um, caregiver populations have really, especially in Oregon, it's been very impressive to see how our caregivers have embraced um, language access and communication access and interpreter services, and also, for that matter, embraced the overall um, ADA education that they're receiving. I would say that probably one of the most, um, I, I mean, I, I, gosh, I mean, the list goes on and on, but I would say um, I know that one time we were faced with a really uh, challenging situation where we had a patient um, who required 24-7 sign language interpreting services, and um, our caregivers, uh, this is also a patient who had a number of other disabilities, but including uh, a service animal. And we had, you know, the patient was definitely, uh, definitely would fit within our, our more vulnerable population group. And our caregivers really rallied around um, this patient, not just uh, for interpreter services purposes, but really rallied around her to make sure that um, all of the needs, all of the patient's needs were met, making sure that the service animal uh, was appropriately taken care of, appropriately being, you know, by the patient, by the patient themselves, but still just really rallying around this patient to make sure that for, for the duration of that stay, um, that the patient was, in, was looked after and, and embraced the interpreters as they came in and out of shift every, you know, eight to 10 hours. Um, embraced the volunteers. There were a number of volunteers that had been organized to to assist with the service animal um, service animal care. So, you know, I mean that, and that's just one of the most recent bigger standouts. We also had another um, patient who required uh, interpreter services, and an oncology patient who was unfortunately uh, ended up passing away. But again, we we received a number of. Um, really wonderful comments from caregivers who were around this patient during that time, just really stating that the interpreters that were uh, on site during this particular uh, encounter, so compassionate, so professional, um, so empathetic, and yet uh, just really were there to do their jobs. And so very complimentary in that respect. Our caregivers have, um, We've had, we have caregivers asking to learn for, for, for sign language. We have a lot of caregivers who ask to learn individual signs just so they can greet deaf patients as they come in. And another thing is our caregivers, are, especially our volunteer groups here in Oregon, um, 
we have adopted um, badge buddies. We call them I Speak badge buddies, uh, where if we have bilingual bilingual volunteers and access services uh, who are are bilingual and speak other languages, they're able to. They have option. Uh, they have a option to identify themselves by wearing a badge buddy that says, you know, I speak Spanish, but it's written in Spanish on a badge buddy. And that way, when people are coming into our hospitals and clinics uh, who don't speak English, if they speak Spanish, they can easily identify someone who they can connect with and relate to, who looks like them, who sounds like them. And it makes it so that our caregivers are reflective of the of the communities that we're serving here in Oregon. So oh. um, there's, I mean, there's, Every day, I, I'm amazed by the the PSGH um, caregivers and and how they've embraced uh, not just the language access services, but but the communities that they're serving with these services as well. Sure, I mean that has to be incredibly comforting. Well, we're going to take a quick break here, but we will come back with much more, and we'll continue our conversation. You know, I said that I am better now, better now. I only say that because you're not around, not around. You know, I never mentioned let you down, let you down. This is Future of Health with Providence St. Joseph Health on Dash Radio. I'm Julie Alexandria, and it is now my pleasure to welcome to the show our special guest for the day, Holly Bonner. She is an award-winning mental health professional, professor, writer, poet, and the creator of blindmotherhood.com. She was a mother of two as well as a breast cancer survivor. Welcome to the show. You have quite the resume there, Holly. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So if you you have an incredible story, and I am so excited to share it with our audience. If you could just rewind and kind of give us your background. Sure. So I was actually diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 19 years old. It was really about two weeks before my, my 19th uh, birthday. And I had found a lump um, a few days after New Year's. And I had to go to about three different doctors before I could get somebody that would actually do testing, like a mammogram, um, in order to find out what the lump was. Because of my age, and at the time it was in the late 1990s, this was a very rare occurrence, and it took going to quite a few uh, uh, professionals before I was able to get the testing that I needed that determined that it was uh, breast cancer. So I was diagnosed with interductal carcinoma. Um, which is, uh, you know, a, a form of breast cancer that affects the duct area. Um, and what ended up happening was, you know, speaking with the doctors and because I was so young, they basically recommended that I did chemotherapy and radiation. I had immediately gone to let's have the mastectomy, let's just get this over with. And I was basically told, listen, you know, because of your age, you may want to have children down the line. You really don't want to put yourself, you know, through that situation if we do the chemotherapy and the radiation, it's early enough that we'll get you through this and you'll go on to have a great life and, you know, you'll, you'll be fine. So that's the course of treatment um, that I ended up taking. And I did get better, but what happened was that the cancer actually came back in the opposite side. Um, so again, I was faced with that decision of do I do the mastectomy or do I do chemotherapy and radiation? And at this point, my body had taken such a beating from the prior bout of cancer that I had that my doctor, again, suggested do the surgery um, as far as just having, you know, like a biopsy done and uh, some of the nodes removed and do the chemotherapy and radiation again, which is what we ended up um, doing. Uh, so it was, a, it was a really hard time for somebody that was so young to have to go through and have to make those medical decisions. Mm-hmm. And then... You find out years later, due to a neurological issue, that you find yourself as a new mother who's blind. Right. So what ended up happening is some of the medication that was used in my chemotherapy cocktail had a propensity to cause 
vision loss and damage the optic nerve. So I developed something called optic neuritis, which is an inflammation of the optic nerve. I spent about 12 days uh, in a hospital at NYU um, in New York City, and I was treated with steroids. They were able to bring down the inflammation, but my uh, eyesight had been severely damaged, and it progressively continued to get worse. I first started noticing it um, when I was having really bad headaches, uh, kind of like in the optical orbit or area, you know, and uh, the side of the head. Um, and then I started tripping over things, things that had never really been an issue for me, like curbs and columns that went floor to ceiling and, and shopping malls, things like that. Um, and as the vision continued to decline after that bout with optic neuritis, my optic nerves ended up detaching um, from my brain. So I have no vision at all on my left side. And on my right side, I have what is 2,900. Um, so basically, I have one small pocket of vision dead center in my eye, and I can make out shapes, I can make out shadows. If things are very, very close to my face, I can have some type of recognition of what the object is. So I really rely on a lot of technology to help me go about and, and live my daily life. Wow. I mean, you are just the prime example of a survivor. And not only are you part of the healthcare industry, you're also an advocate for ensuing ensuring, sorry, services for people with hearing and sight loss. Why, in your words, why is it so important for healthcare systems and, I mean, any business for that matter, to ensure that they are providing those hearing and vision needs? I think that people really take their health for granted, and they don't understand that the way you wake up in the morning might not be the way you wake up tomorrow morning. So it's really important for the healthcare system as a whole to include people that have disabilities such as hearing loss, vision loss, when they're making any type of regulation or any type of adjustment to services so that we all are able to get what we need in a capacity that allows us to understand it in a format that works for us. There is nothing more frustrating when you are a disabled person than going into a doctor's office or a hospital and being handed paperwork that maybe you can't see to fill out or have to explain your disability repeatedly to staff because they're just uneducated and don't understand kind of the parameters of your disability. I find that I experience that quite often as somebody with a visual impairment. And I also have two children. My, my girls are five and three. Six months after I lost my eyesight, I found out that I was pregnant with my first daughter. So to go from now not only being a blind woman, but being a blind woman that is going to be transitioning into motherhood and having to deal with the healthcare system as both parent, you know, and a, a, the individual that has a disability, it's even more so important because I have to take care of my own health and I have to ensure the health of my children. Of course, so much to take on at once. And knowing that PSJH has dedicated entire teams to meeting the needs and offering universal services and patient navigators, et cetera, how does that make you feel? Because you just mentioned all the frustrations that come along when a hospital or a caregiver is unaware of those certain issues that come along with being disabled. But knowing that PSJH is incredibly dedicated and takes it so seriously, does that give you hope? I think PSJH is actually setting a standard that more people in the healthcare industry need to follow. It does give me hope to see that uh, an organization in the healthcare field, that PSJH is taking the time to educate their staff, provide these navigators, really understand people's disabilities, and work towards providing the type of care that is both accessible and inclusive for them. That is such a, a, a key element. And to take the time, the money, and the effort to implement those things, I mean, it, it really is a gold standard. Mm -hmm. What do you think that most companies are really missing when it comes to ensuring access to those with hearing or sight needs? I think that they're missing, I think what they're missing is that people that have disabilities are still rele relevant consumers. We are part of the people that you serve and we expect to be, be served. And I think some of these companies greatly diminish and doubt 
just how much their voice plays a role in how the world treats people who have disabilities, regardless of whatever that disability may be. So uh, someplace like PSJH, who has these patient navigators and has a whole team dedicated, they really are kind of the stone in the water, and they create that ripple effect, and they understand that they're part of a larger picture. Other companies that aren't able to do this and kind of match these services are really, you know, not serving the population to the way that they can because they don't understand the long-term effects if they did the right thing. Right. And what is one thing that you'd ask people to think about or companies, businesses to think about when it comes to people with hearing and sight issues and how they access healthcare? I just wish people, when they encountered somebody that had a disability, would understand that we really don't expect sympathy. We just would like the same empathy, common decency, courtesy that any other person gets. And that is so frustrating to have to say that, but that is really what it boils down to. I don't want anybody to feel sorry for me when I'm you know, out at the doctor's office with my two children and my guide dog because I lost my sight you know, as a breast cancer survivor. I don't, I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I don't want your pity. What I want is to feel like a normal human being that can go in and do what I need to do and accomplish the tasks that I need to accomplish in order to take care of the health of my family and myself. And that's something that sounds maybe minimalistic, but that really is what the disabled community wants. We want inclusion and we want to have that overall respect that everybody else is entitled to. Absolutely. And then that's, you know, those are some of the issues that you cover on your website. And I want to give you a shout out for your website because it's really so well done and so honest. So for those who are listening, if you do want to follow up on Holly's story, you can check out her website, blindmotherhood.com. And and Holly, you really go into detail about all of those things and sharing your journey. What's something that you hope that someone takes away from reading about your story and, and just sort of your um, ability to be so candid and so honest about your journey? You know, when I was pregnant with my first daughter, I, I really tried to listen to as many parenting books as I could get my hands on. And people that write parenting books leave a lot out. There were a lot of things that weren't covered in different books that, that I had read. So what I hope when people come to Blind Motherhood is they're able to fill in those gaps. And I really hope that some of the younger generation of the disabled community, whether they're blind or visually impaired, deaf, hard of hearing, have a physical disability, that they understand that they can one day too have families if they choose. You know, there's so many different ways to, to have a family and to enjoy having children if they want to. And I think what Blind Motherhood exhibits is that, you know, it's possible, but there's a lot of frustration. It's a lot of hard work. And you certainly need a sense of humor, especially when you're raising children. <laughs> well, that is very true. <laughs> that, Absolutely. Those are some great words of advice. Well, Holly, your story is absolutely riveting. And we are so very grateful and thankful for you for coming on the show and for being so candid with us and sharing your story. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to have much more here on Dash Radio. I hear the drums echoing tonight, but she hears only whispers of some quiet conversation. Listening to Future of Health with Providence St. Joseph Health here on Dash Radio. We're talking about language services and we're joined now by Wendy Zhang. She is the Multicultural Engagement Director. Wendy, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Fantastic. So, if you can tell us what is a Multicultural Engagement Director, what is it that you do? I work with 
Swedish Health Services up in Seattle area, an, an affiliate of uh, Providence St. Joe's Health as the uh, Multicultural Engagement Director. What we focus on up in the Seattle area is to reach out to the multicultural community through outreach, education, patient engagement, and through a, a uh, multitude of platforms, including social and new media and uh, grassroots campaigns. So our goal is to increase health and uh, wellness, uh, awareness on health and wellness. Mm-hmm. And your role as it relates to language access, it's a bit different from some of our other guests that we've been speaking to here on this episode. You're more focused on how you proactively reach out to people with language barrier issues and bring them into the PSJH system. So what does that entail? How do you go about reaching out to different communities of different cultural backgrounds, different language and linguistic backgrounds, and bring them into the PSJH family? So, uh, Julie, that's a great question, Julie. Let me give you an example of what we've done uh, here in the Seattle area. Three years ago, we actually piloted a, uh, a multicultural outreach and engagement program where we uh, we were looking at integrating new media, so social media specific to that uh, that multicultural community to do uh, to, to engage patients. So as an example, we did a, uh, you know, in, in 2017, we did a, a thousand uh, Asian person colonoscopy campaign in the Seattle, greater Seattle region, where we actually activated uh, new, pe- uh, new media platforms, social media, for example, specific to the Chinese, Chinese American community, Korean, Korean American community, as well as Vietnamese, Vietnamese American community, where we were able to actually have bilingual, multilingual uh, colonoscopy infographics. So we're, you know, imagine that infographic with embedded QR code where uh, we distribute these uh, infographics and also info bilingual infomercials to the specific community via the Chinese community. In this case, it's WeChat platform. So WeChat platform is a multi media social platform so you know i think of it i always expect you know, use it as a parallel example think of wechat platform as a combination of facebook instagram twitter uh, skype email all in one so uh so we distributed distributed infographic infomercials about uh, colonoscopy uh to that particular community where and then for for the, within the Korean community, we actually distributed infograph bilingual infographic and infomercials through uh, Catalk platform. That's the equivalent of uh, WeChat, equivalent of uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, all in one for the Korean Korean American community. So through that process, we you know what we did was uh, we we were narrowing down the the messaging down to okay well you know out of a thousand colonoscopies we are you know we'll, we'll define based on data it's, it's fifty to twenty uh, people with early uh, with uh, you know who will benefit from getting a colonoscopy so through that we were able to actually did uh, do a one year uh, pilot outreach education event to that particular community in their particular language so in this specific case when pay, when community members see this this info infographic, they will be able to actually learn a little bit, you know, here's one, two, three about colonoscopy, the benefits of colonoscopy, why it's important, but also more importantly, the call to action. So there's an embedded QR code on that infographic where where actually individuals will be able to click on that page, that infographic, and links them directly to the bilingual health navigators we have in the on the back end where they'll be able to chat with the the navigator, the bilingual navigator in their own language or in English and say, you know what, I'm interested in getting an appointment with this particular doctor that you're talking about, or uh, I'm interested in getting a colonoscopy. Can you help me set it up? So then this this actually, uh, so the bilingual uh, navigator will be able to actually, uh, to, to on the back end, work with uh, with with uh, folks at the clinic on the back end with patient service uh, coordinators, per patient service representatives at each uh, specialty care clinic within our system to say, okay, well, I got this person who's interested, who, who really would like to get, you know, get set up with a colonoscopy employment or a primary care employment. Uh, can I connect you with them? So then, the, the, then the navigator becomes an observer in that process, where the the the, uh, the PSR, the patient service representative, or the PSC, the, the patient service coordinator, will be actually talking to. 
talking to at this point an interested community member who uh, is looking into becoming a patient. So then our navigator becomes the, the you know the observer in that conversation, and they're 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 certified medical interpreters, but also uh, you know they they are uh, you know they're following everything. Uh, all the procedures uh, regarding to um, HIPAA. So, so this is a, an example of how we're able to actually reach out to the community using the uh, using the th- this type of uh, new media platform. And then, the, after the procedure, the uh, uh, the the, the nav- our navigators will be able to actually connect with um, you know talk to talk whether it's call or talk to. Uh, patients at this point in time, and to actually to, to talk to them, discuss with them about their experience, and and I'll be able to get feedback about their experience, and we actually track that on the back end. So through the two, 2016, uh, you know, 2016 year to the, the end of 2016 to beginning of 2017, and the 12 month period, we were able to get um, over uh, 500 uh, colonoscopies done from you know. So through, through the process. So through the process, we learned that this can be uh, a good way to uh, raise awareness about a particular campaign, a particular health issue, but also help, help to uh, engage community member and engage patient to make sure that we have we close the loop and create the whole system to uh, to to to, uh, to to for outreach, education, and engagement. Mm-hmm. And you would deem that a targeted campaign, correct? Because you're putting the information out there on the platforms, in the places that these communities will get the highest visibility. Correct. And how does that vary from any other campaigns that you would do? So I, I think, you know, because we're testing out a, uh, a new media uh, platform, so it's a communication platform that's in that particular language. So all of our, uh, our, all of our outreach education, marketing collaterals, information are actually in bilingual. So it's very tailored and we, it's very tailored to, for example, in this case, the Asian, uh, particular Asian community in Seattle, in Bellevue, so in the greater Seattle region, that particular messaging might not fit into other communities, uh, you know, because of the language uh, difference. And, and, and also the WeChat, the Cat Talk platform that we're using, it's very specific to that particular community to the Chinese, Chinese American community, Korean, Korean American community in that sense. I, you know, I, I say uh, we're, we're able to actually look at different demographics and because we under, we are we have these uh, 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 individual community members as our followers, if you will call it, uh, we'll be able to actually uh, do a much more in-depth um, focused uh, campaign. Mm-hmm. And can you explain to me what the role of care navigators are? What what exactly is a care navigator? So, so there's a, there's about three separate three of their main roles as a care navigator as a bilingual uh, care navigators. One we focus on outreach. And number one we do outreach and education. So these are actually. Uh, Care navigators who who's had extensive experience working in the community, uh, working in social services, so they understand where the patients or our community are coming from. So so then as they as they work to, and, and then that actually takes them to the next uh, the next major category of work that they, they function within is education, working with our internal care providers, so working with our physicians and our clinics to to set up educational events in the community, whether it's health fairs, uh, education seminars, or um, you know, or you know, glucose uh, uh, testing sites, or um, you know, or, or uh, uh, breast cancer imaging, uh, mammography. Uh, uh, activity. So, so they're actually the connectors. So, the the, the 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 second thing that they do is that as a connector between care provi- between our, our clinicians and also the community. So, they're the liaison to set up the education events. And the last piece of it is they're acting as the 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 uh, the, the advocate, the con- almost the concierge for a patient and their family within the healthcare system, as we know, healthcare system as complex as, as it has been and it is, uh, you know, they are the actually the, the patient and family's advocate in dealing with billing, finance, financial um, finan- financial issues that patients might come across, and they're actually working with 
clinic got PSRs and PSCs to help patients make appointments, uh, to help patients figure out the direction and how to get to the hospital, how to get to the specific clinic, and then what to do ahead of time. Uh, The the pre pre uh, procedure um, pre procedure uh, uh, notes and etc. These are all the, the the things that fall within the care navigator. So they're the they're the, uh, the, the 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 advocate, the concierge working with the whether it's medical record, whether it's physician, or uh, whether it's dealing with a financial issues. So they're the main category. They're 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 the medical interpreter, but uh, they don't those they don't act as the they, they, that's their default. But their main function is to outreach education and make sure that they are the patient advocate within the system in language. Sure, and boosting the effective communication for those patients. Now, I know that you've worked on a few really innovative programs like putting your clinical experts out there regularly to speak to culturally relevant healthcare needs in language where that consumer already is. So can you give us an example of that? Sure. So we've done actually, uh, so in addition to the new media outreach, so social media outreach, we've also worked with traditional media like in language, radio station, newspaper, TV station. So to put, you know, here's an example of how we actually uh, work with these organizations in the Chinese and Korean and Vietnamese community here in the Seattle area. We work with the radio station. So for example, the uh, uh, for, for Korean community, it's the Radio Hanku that, that is in language uh, radio station that is Korean Korean, Korean American radio station that broadcasts over the not only Seattle, Portland region, but also West Coast. So they, you know, we actually put our Korean and Korean American and also uh, English speaking physicians uh, to those uh, stations. So every month we would so people that we send our physicians, Swedish physicians, uh, Providence Angels physicians to the radio station to talk about a particular health topic. Uh, so we do that every every month with the radio station uh, here in the Seattle um, Seattle region for Korean ba- uh, Korean consumer base, and then for the uh, we also work with for the for the TV station, so the Korean American TV station KOAM TV. We actually uh, get work with them to do infomercials or about health particular health topics. So we will actually uh, connect the, our, our physicians, for example, our, cancer, our oncologists with the station to do regular health shows on, and, and health talks and et cetera. And then, with, of course, with the newspaper, we, we have a monthly, uh, monthly column about health and wellness. So it's in language. We wrote, we, we talked about from colonoscopy to mammography to, uh, you know, immunization, flu shots, and et cetera. So similarly, in the uh, Chinese Chinese American market here in the Seattle area, we work with Seattle Chinese radio station to do regular to do ongoing health talks uh, with the uh, with the station broadcast that is broadcast throughout the Washington area. We also work with the uh, the Chinese language based uh, magazine newspaper, uh, you know, as well as uh, Asian American TV uh, to to actually uh, do do very tailored, very specific. Uh, you know, very specific uh, health education uh, workshops and, and, and outreach. Uh, here's an example in around, you know, usually around August, we'll do an immunization uh, flu shot pediatric appointment um, appointment uh, health work, health education segment where, you know, we'll have our pediatricians, our primary care physicians go out to the uh, both uh, radio station and the TV station to actually talk about these the importance of immunization. Um, so, for example, recently in Seattle, we've had uh, you know heavy smoke from Eastern Washington as well as Canada. So we mm-hmm. have our physicians go out to to the community to uh, through those radio stations, TV station, and newspaper to talk about the importance of air quality, uh, the importance you know the the cautionary notes and and how. It, uh, the impact that it has on on, on children and, and how children should be getting um, they should be uh, coming back to to uh, you know to to, to take uh, precautionary uh, measures. Mm-hmm. So important to have your healthcare providers have that visibility. Well, if you want any more information on the care navigators that we've been mentioning today or the various language services available at PSJH, you can check out future.psjhealth.org and also you can find them on social media at PSJH. 
Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to our entire cast today for this language services episode. Thank you to Jennifer, Kathleen, and Holly for sharing your wonderful stories and your journeys with us. And thank you everyone for listening. We always appreciate it. And we look forward to a future topic with more experts from Providence St. Joseph Health. Make sure to follow Providence St. Joseph Health on social media at PSJH on Twitter and Instagram and Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. I'm Julie Alexandria. We'll see you next time.